Hey, welcome to Sunday School. I'm glad you're here. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. You're listening to the Mills Sunday School Podcast. We are the College and 20-somethings ministry of New Life Church. Uh, Open your Bibles to Isaiah 61. We're going to read the whole chapter here as an introduction to this morning. Isaiah 61 is a uh, very popular, very well-known passage in Isaiah. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God, You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a, a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity, and my faithfulness I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign... Lord, will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Isaiah 61. Uh, I wanted to start by reading that verse to kind of set the stage, but before I kind of jump into things, I wanted to tell you kind of a little bit of my story uh, and how I'm here, why I'm sitting at this table even. Um, I will go back about eight years. I was in high school um, in upstate New York in a town called Saratoga Springs, and I played sports in high school, I played lacrosse, and I was really pretty set on going to play lacrosse at school, um, and had a, had a couple chances to do that, and throughout my senior year, I just felt, I kept feeling this, this thing in me that I didn't quite understand that was saying, maybe going to school right away, maybe playing sports, going to school just to play sports without an idea of exactly what I wanted to do wasn't the best plan for my life at the moment, so I took a year off of school, and uh, throughout that year, realized that there's this, there this internship here in Colorado Springs at this church. Um, it was called 24-7, and that, through a few circumstances, it became clear that that's what I wanted to do uh, as the next thing in my life. So I kind of put playing sports on hold and uh, took a year off to work and raise money and ended up here. And I went through that year, went through that internship, and learned a lot, uh, and graduated and was planning on doing a second year in that, in that school, which that year had trans, uh, transformed into what's now Desperation Leadership Academy. So uh, coming from upstate New York, uh, living out here for nine months, I had 
a lot of my possessions out here. I had my car out here. And I had this, this three-month gap where I could either go back to New York, work, and then come right back, probably driving because I wasn't making a ton of money to pay for airline tickets. So I was going to drive cross-country. And I thought, there might be a better way to do this if I just stay here. But I don't want to just stay here in Colorado Springs for the next three months with nothing to do. So... One night I was at the Friday night service, which then was the mill and is now New Life Friday night. And I walked up to this guy named Joe Kirkendall. And I was like, Joe, I, I didn't know Joe very well at the time, but I was like, Joe, I, I know that you do a lot for the mill and I know that you um, have a lot on your plate. So I'm here. I can be here for the next three months if you want. Uh, if, if you have something that I could help you with, if, if you have something that I could do, then I'm thinking I might stay here in Colorado and and just wait until this internship starts in its second year. And Joe said, yeah, that's great. Um, so Joe and I started working together, and Joe taught me how to do video editing, so I helped him out with a bunch of that. And so Joe, through indirect circumstances, is, you could say he's responsible for me being here. And I've gotten to know Joe quite a lot. He's, he's responsible for me uh, growing into to what it is that I do now. And I think that's a really cool thing. Joe... Uh, was was gracious enough to teach me. He was gracious enough to help bring me along, even though he had a lot of things on his plate. You know how sometimes when you've got a lot of stuff going on, to bring someone else in to try to help you is actually ends up being more work than it, it would have been if you just did it all yourself? Well, I feel like that might have been the case for Joe at some points because I, I, um, he, he taught me from scratch a lot of things, how to, how to make videos, and him and I worked together on that. So I've gotten to know Joe quite a bit. And if if you guys have been around Sunday school for a while, or uh, you've gotten to know Joe, you'll, you'll know that Joe is, is interesting. He's really fun, he's really funny, but he's interesting. He's, he's one of those people where you, you look at him and you're like, I want someone to make a documentary about your life, because I would watch it. Um, so, so yeah, so he, he taught me all those things. And one of the things, through working with Joe for the last seven and a half years, that I'm so impressed with Joe about is that he has this imagination. He has these ideas that uh, are, are peculiar, but they're really interesting. Like I said, it's like if someone made a documentary about all the ideas that he comes up with, the way his mind works, I would watch it the day it came out because it would be so interesting to me. Some of, the, some of the ideas throughout the years that I've loved is we had this office over uh, adjacent to where our offices are now, and Joe took one of the walls and just covered it in chalkboard paint and like, would draw on it and do all sorts of different things. Um, if you've ever noticed, Joe carries around this little notebook uh, and he, has, he like, writes these little notes in it. And if you've, ever, if you've ever had the chance to see one of those notes, you wouldn't know what you're looking at because you can't read it. It's indecipherable. But Joe helps, it helps him memorize things and it helps him remember things. And he catalogs those notebooks. So if you go into his office, you'll see notebooks uh, of varying shapes, colors, sizes, from like the 90s, just sitting on his bookshelf. And it's like, you don't ever look at those. Why do you keep them? But he does. If you've been in his office long enough to realize that all of his books are color-coordinated. So it's not like all the books on this are over here and all the books on on this are over here. There's some sort of system for that, but most of it is just the green books are over here and the blue books are over here. It's really interesting. And then a few years ago, uh, working with Joe... Uh, we started to pick up on something that was kind of new about him, and that's that he, he started to wear black v-necks all the time. 
and that's all he wears. Is Joe? Yeah, he's sitting right here. So if you if if you've been around Joe long enough, you've probably recognized that you've never seen him wearing anything but a black V-neck and then some sort of variation, a, a, a suit jacket, a coat jacket. And I I just thought that's really peculiar. It's a it's an interesting thing about Joe. And when he first kind of mentioned like, yeah, I'm going to try this. I have this idea of of wearing black V-necks. And I thought, where does that come from? Is that like you were watching Apple's keynote and you saw Steve Jobs who always wore like the Walmart jeans and the black turtleneck and you thought that was cool. Steve Jobs is doing good, so maybe that's his key to success. I don't know. I was like, what is it? Why are you, what are you aspiring to by doing this? And, and I was tempted to kind of just say, that's, that's odd and it's, it's great for you if that's what you want to do, but I don't, it doesn't, it's just not my thing, so I'm not going to do it. And so you can do that, and I'll do my thing, and great, we, we'll just not, we'll not worry about it. But, but one day we were kind of prodding with Joe and just saying, Joe, what is it? Like, what, what caused you to, to do that? And he told us this story about when he was growing up, also in upstate New York. Uh, Joe's, Joe, you've probably heard him talk about his family. He grew up in a military family, so he traveled around, and he was at a, a base, his dad was in the Air Force, and he went to school, and with, with the place he was going to school, there was a lot of diversity economically. So there were some people who were really well off, really not well off, and kids at his school would kind of pick on other kids because they maybe wore the same shirt twice in the same week, or, or you know, they didn't have as many clothes, and they, the, the maybe more economically well-off kids would, would notice that in the other kids and, and pick on them. And so Joe had this this idea where it's like, well, if, if you can recognize that the kid wore this shirt on Monday and then again on Thursday, uh, and you're going to pick on him for that, then what if we just wore the same exact shirt every day and you couldn't tell the difference? And so part, part of that story about Joe is why he wears black V-necks is, is kind of like this idea of, well, maybe that would help people who, who maybe aren't as well off uh, feel more comfortable about themselves, feel like they don't have to be self-conscious. By If you wear a black v-neck every day, um, then nobody's really going to say, didn't you wear that black v-neck yesterday? It's like, well, you really wouldn't be able to tell. And so that moment and, and me knowing Joe was a really interesting thing because I realized that Joe has these things about him that you might look and say, that's really odd or that's interesting and that's peculiar. And if you don't take the time to understand those things, then that's all it'll ever be. It'll be odd. It'll be uh, something that is, is quirky or interesting. But that moment in, in talking with Joe and getting to know why that idea came about, why that thing sparked in his imagination, helped me to understand and make sense of it all. And I think this is something that we do uh, as humans, as as. People. It's kind of something that's in our history where if something is odd and something doesn't totally make sense, the tendency is to accept uh, a misunderstanding over working toward, towards understanding. Does that make sense? So if, something, if you see someone on the street and they look a little funny, um, you, might, you might have this snap judgment or a snap misunderstanding about that person. And human, I think the human tendency is to be comfortable with making that misunderstanding because to work to understand would take too much time, would take too much effort. And I think that's something that we do a lot of times with the Bible. And so we look at this text that we've been in for the last two months. Uh, We look at the book of Isaiah, and there's some things that are odd and peculiar and interesting about the book. And and 
I think we understand a lot of it, and then there's some things that we don't understand. Um, and, and I think on a whole, we, when, we, when we misunderstand verses, and I don't mean it's odd and so we, we, we discard it, but we just we don't know the, the full depth of the Scripture. We are tempted to just kind of skip to the next thing and say, oh, well, okay, I don't really understand that, but I'll just move to something that kind of makes sense and I'll keep reading and hopefully it'll make sense. And so when I was studying Isaiah, I, was like, I, I just thought, you know, there's, there's something about this book that I think would unlock depth for people, for, would unlock depth for me. Um, and so when I was younger, I, I would look at Isaiah and I, when I was really young, I thought Isaiah was kind of this, this book about, like Joe talked about a few weeks ago, we, kind of the general scholarship of today believes that Isaiah was written by kind of a group of authors, not necessarily one person named Isaiah. Uh, there was a guy named Isaiah who, who probably is responsible for a large portion of the content, but there's other authors involved. And so when I was younger, I thought these authors were kind of like fortune tellers. So they're, they're sitting, uh, sitting around, maybe they look crazy and they have some weird works about them, and they're sitting around and they're just telling the fortune of this, this nation of Judah. They're telling the fortune of the people of Israel, uh, kind of as like a mystical thing, like predicting things. And I thought, that's, that's weird, but what, is it, what does it mean? You know, like, that's fine if that's what it is, but what does that mean for us? And then, uh, as I grew older, I started to realize that there's something about Isaiah that's pointing towards the Messiah, that's pointing towards Jesus. And so I started to develop this thinking that Isaiah was rather than being a group of fortune tellers, it's a group of people kind of, uh, like if you're familiar with the way that people get into the NFL, there's these guys called scouts. And they're looking for certain attributes in players. They're looking at college students and high school students, and they're saying that high school student or that college student has this attribute that I think would be helpful for our team, so let's keep an eye on him. And so I, I started to kind of develop this idea that Isaiah is this group of people who are kind of like the Messiah scouts, and they're, they're, look, they're saying the Messiah will be like this, so we should keep our, our eyes on anyone like that. Or the Messiah will, will, like the suffering servant, the Messiah will be a servant who suffers. So let's kind of put little earmarks on people's lives who are servants who suffer. I thought, okay, if, that, if that's what it is, that's, that's wonderful. I remember even thinking that Isaiah was this, this passage of Scripture that God put in our Bibles, these group, this group of people that put on, God put on earth as kind of like his, his backup proof plan. So if, if somebody met Jesus and they believed everything about him, but they had their doubts, then they could look back to Isaiah and God says, yeah, I put these people here to prove it to you. Uh, they, they predicted it all so that when you have doubts, you can look at Isaiah and it can be a great proof. I thought if, if that's what this is, then that's great. But I'm I'd like to suggest that it's, it's something more than all of that. I think it's not specifically any of those, and it's not specifically not any of those. Um, I was reading one of the scholars that I was studying uh, from the, in preparing for this talk uh, basically said that he, he, it's his belief that rather, where we might say that Isaiah is predicting Christ, he would say it's not at all. It, it's Isaiah... Um, working out of his, his historical understanding, his context, and talking about God, and talking about how he's a redeemer, and talking about how he's a savior. So, so when, we, when that's the case, when we recognize all those things that we might think Isaiah is, 
uh, and we, we say all that can be great, but what's, what else is there? The question that we ask is, why do we need Isaiah now? So that's kind of the, the, the big point of what I'm going to try to talk about today, is why do we um, need Isaiah now? If Isaiah was a fortune teller, we can see that the history of Judah played out like he thought it would, uh, like he predicted, like he kind of told the fortune of. Um, we can see that the things that he said happened. Uh, if Isaiah was a scout, if he was the Messiah scout looking for Jesus, looking for the signs of the Messiah in people, um, or recognizing stories or pointing people towards stories to keep an eye out for, then, then I think that happened. You know, when Jesus came on the scene, people, um, people saw him and their minds were drawn back to this book of Isaiah and they thought, this guy must be the Messiah. He must be the Christ that we've been waiting for. And if the prophets, if Isaiah were God's plan, uh, were God's plants to help people go back to Jesus and kind of sure up their faith, uh, kind of remove doubts, then I think Isaiah does that for us. But I want to suggest that Isaiah is more than that, and that Isaiah is an, is an act of imagination that's outside of the ideology of our time. It's a little bit of a confusing thing. I took, I took that line from a guy named Walter Brueggemann, who, Walter Brueggemann is, is the person who the quote is on the back of the notes that you got in. We'll get to that quote in a little bit. But Walter Brueggemann is this Old Testament scholar who's looking uh, at all these scriptures, and he's a really smart guy. And You can go on YouTube, you can read his books, uh, and if, you, if you're a nerd, which is why you're here at Sunday School, because we're all kind of nerds and we want to learn more about the Bible, um, so if you're a nerd and you want to go e- do even more work, I suggest any video that you can find on YouTube of Walter Brueggemann preaching or teaching would be helpful for you. It'll, it'll, it won't, you won't be sad that you did it afterwards. Um, so Isaiah is an act of imagination outside of the ideology of our time. And so for, for the people who the book was ori- originally given to, what, what is the ideology of their time? This is something, the ideology of our time is kind of maybe what's the prevailing culture, what's the prevailing society doing. Uh, and I think that this, there's some themes that existed then that still exist now in certain ways. Uh, themes like exile, uh, loneliness, people being away from home, themes like conquest, uh, other people lording strength or lording power over other people, themes of slavery, um, broken covenant with God, pride, idolatry, they were all part of the ideology of that time, of Isaiah's time. Um, and we, when we look at Isaiah, we realize that uh, he's, he's basically pointing at all of those things, the ideology of the time, and he's trying to work against it. He's trying to call people out of it. Um, but it's rooted in something. Isaiah doesn't show up on the scene uh, with no context. Uh, you've probably heard the term, something doesn't exist in a vacuum. So, so Isaiah doesn't exist in a vacuum. It doesn't come come to be as, as part of our scripture because uh, it just sparked or God just created this thing ex nihilo, which is out of nothing, um, like he did in the beginning. Isaiah, the, the words that we find in Isaiah are there because of the fact that the, the authors of Isaiah and Isaiah himself were rooted in history. So this happened um, about 500 years or so, uh, 500 I think it's 500 to 700, I could be a little off on that, before Jesus shows up on the scene. 
And so what these people are looking at in their scriptures and their holy book is they're looking at the stories of uh, Israel in, Eg- in the Exodus account. So let's look at, let's, if you have your Bibles, real quickly open up to Exodus 19. And I want to show you something that I was pointed out to this, this week in studying that I thought was really interesting. Um, and while you're returning to there, I want to kind of set the stage by saying my wife and I have uh, a gym membership. Do you guys, how many of you guys in this room have a gym membership? Or, you, uh, or maybe an, another, another thing to look at is like how many you guys are almost all in college. A lot of people are in college. Um, how many of you have ever been on a college visit? Anyone? Okay, so you went to a school, you kind of checked it out, trying to decide, is this somewhere where I want to be? And so my wife and I uh, have this gym membership that we use probably less frequently than we should. Um, But before we joined this gym, there was this day where we went to the gym, we hadn't joined yet, and we met someone who walked us around and showed us everything. Uh, It was like a test drive for a car. We got to check everything out. We got to look at all the different pieces of the gym and uh, all the things that they offered. And then we got to sit down, and they told us that we were sitting in their office, and they told us exactly what everything would cost, uh, what the cost would be to my wife and I, what, what it would look like every month, uh, any fees that were associated with joining the gym. And, and we got to make a choice based on knowing what it would cost. We saw the benefit. We saw all of that. We saw the people working out and enjoying it. But we knew before entering into this that we knew that exactly what this gym membership would cost us. So if you can say that we joined a covenant with our gym, uh, we did. Um, we joined the gym and we knew what it would cost us, and that it was, it was, it's great. Like I said, we don't use it as often as we should, but we have it. Um, and so looking at Exodus 19, we see Exodus 19 is this story where, where Moses is talking to God, and God is talking, Moses is kind of the, the representative of Israel, and he's, he's communicating with God, and God's calling him into covenant. He's calling his people Israel into a covenant. And when I think of the covenant that God made with us, with his people, I always think about, you, you think back to this story, kind of the, the, around this time, and you think, okay, he, he called us into covenant by giving us the Ten Commandments and asking us to follow it. But if you'll notice that if your Bibles are open to Exodus 19, that this Exodus 19, if we were to read through it, uh, this is where God calls Moses into covenant. And Moses goes to the people and tells the people what God said, and they say, yes, we'll do what he's asked us. We'll do what he said. Um, And then, after Exodus 19, Exodus 20 happens. And that's when God gives us the Ten Commandments. So this really remarkable thing happens in the Exodus story that I had never really picked up on, and that's that the people of Israel joined into covenant with God before knowing what it would cost them before knowing what the commandments were, before knowing what he was going to ask of them specifically. And they did it on faith. They did it on, on faith, trusting that he was good. And you'll, you'll, if you know the story, you know that this is because he's just delivered them from slavery. He's delivered them from uh, a construct, uh, a societal system that had them as slaves working for nothing just because they had been captured by Egypt and because Pharaoh was powerful and because he could tell them to do what he wanted them to do, and they didn't have a choice about it. And God rescued them out of that. And so they're making this, they're, they're making this covenant with God, not knowing exactly what it would cost them, but, but making it on trust that he, he will continue to be good like he was just good to them in, in the last 40 years. 
Um, and I thought that was a really interesting thing. And, and this, is, this, is, this story, this Exodus account, is what Isaiah has as a history. It's what he's working out of when he prophesies, when he calls people uh, out of the idolatry or the pride that is, exists in Judah and exists in Israel. It's Isaiah working out of a historical understanding that God was good to them and delivered them even in the midst of a, of a hopeless situation where Pharaoh had no intention of giving up power. And in fact, uh, he, he was calling them, not only in their slavery, they were already slaves, they were already doing work, he started giving them less straw to make more brick to build what he wanted them to build. So not only is it a hopeless situation, it's getting worse uh, pretty quickly. And this is what Isaiah is working with. So when we, when we look at that and we say, then what is Isaiah doing? Uh, you might look at Isaiah and you think he's kind of this old grandfather figure who sees people doing the wrong thing and is kind of calling them out. He's like the old grandfather sitting on his rocking chair who wants to read his newspaper and all the kids are running around and he's, he's mad at them because they're disturbing him or whatever. It's, but it's, he's, he's more than that. It's, this, this is a book full of milestones. Uh, Isaiah is, is saying to the people of Judah, look at... Look at the Exodus account. Look at where, what God did for us in the past, and look what he's promised to do for us in the future. So it's a book of milestones that causes us to look at God's faithfulness toward his people. Um, it's, it, the book of Isaiah is full of signposts pointing towards God as the emancipator. Um, it's pointing towards God as the covenant maker. Uh, it's pointing towards a God who hasn't forgotten the covenant that he made at Sinai in Exodus, Exodus 19. And it's... Uh, pointing towards a God who, after Exodus 19, remembers the fact that that covenant has been broken time and time again by his people. Uh, He doesn't forget the covenant. He doesn't forget that we've broken the covenant. And he doesn't forget that he renewed the covenant at the cross. So that's who this God is. That's what Isaiah is working towards. Obviously, we we have the privilege of looking at the cross and seeing that the covenant um, was renewed there. Um, but this is, this is Isaiah's context. This is what he, he's drawing from the historical understanding that God is the deliverer. He's the emancipator. And he's causing people to rethink the way that they now see themselves in the, the ideology of their own time. So when you start to see that Isaiah is this prophetic imagination uh, shifting thing, um, you begin to develop from it new ways of imagining things. And so Walter Brueggemann talks a lot about imagining when it comes to Isaiah. And he talks about this idea that, that, that Isaiah reshaped our imagination. And you might say, what does that, even, what does that mean? Um, I was researching a little bit this week about imagination and what it does for us. And I found this, this thing where this, this, these people in Australia did this study, these psychologists did a study, where they're trying to figure out the correlation between imagination and, and the, real world, the real world, if you can call it that, what you do, what you put your hands to. And they, they proved uh, through certain tests that this, the amount of effort or the amount of aptitude a person had in their imagination was directly related to the, their performance in cognitive and, um, let's see, cognitive and perceptual tasks in the real world. So... Basically, what this means is if, if you can imagine things, if you can create things with your mind, you're going to live a different way. You're going to act a different way. You'll be maybe more apt to, um, to be successful. Maybe you'll, you'll find success easier in whatever it is that you're doing. 
And I thought, that's such an interesting thing. And how does that, how does that relate to what Isaiah does for us? Why, how does that relate to what this book does when we read it? And, and here's, here's kind of what I think it says. Is that if, so these psychologists basically said little things like if at the beginning of your week, if this is how, how you're going to imagine your week, if the, at the beginning of the week you have this time where you imagine what the week is going to be like, maybe you have your schedule, you open up your calendar and you say, okay, I'm going to imagine, and not in like a weird like, like role-playing thing, but you just imagine. You go through in your mind and say, this, I have this appointment and, and this is that conversation that needs to be had. And then I have this thing that I have to go to. And then I'm going to go uh, exercise. And, and this is kind of what I want to exercise this week. So when you're able to imagine things like that, when you're able to uh, kind of foresee, and when you're able to look at things before they happen, then, then when it actually comes time to do those things, you kind of have a, a game plan in, in place. And so Isaiah is the training ground in reimagining for the believer. So when, when the world says, um, you're a slave to materialism and you don't have a way out, the next iPhone's coming out next year and you're going to have to buy it because if you don't, uh, number one, you won't have the same phone as your friends and that won't be cool. Uh, but number two, if you, if you wait long enough, that phone is not, it's going to be obsolete. It's not going to do the things that a phone should do. So you're a slave to materialism and you won't get out. And Isaiah would say to us to reimagine that, that, that there's a way of living generously. There's a way of living outside of materialism. There's a way of living humbly and within our means without needing to take debt on, without having to, to take unnecessary loans. When the world says that you'll never get away from lust, that they've put images and false um, forms of sexuality in front of your eyes at every turn, Isaiah says to remember, says to, to reimagine the way that the, the world is telling you uh, that you don't have hope, and Isaiah is telling you to remember that God is a God who brings people out of hopeless situations. He's a God who rescues slaves out of slavery. If, in a world that says you need to make more bricks out of less straw or else you don't have value, you need to, you need to be able to prove your work. You need to be able to um, show that you've, your, your value has come from what you've done, what you've produced. Uh, you shouldn't take that extra day off. You shouldn't take a Sabbath because the more you work, the more value people will see in you. Isaiah reminds us of the words of Jesus that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So, so, so these are ways of looking at Isaiah. These are ways of looking at, at our world. And, and through Isaiah, we can see that we're trained to reimagine the way that the world would have us think and the world would have us act and the world would have us do. And so even right now, like, we're faced with these fearful situations. We're faced with, um, like, you've, if you've looked at any newspaper, you see things about ISIS and you think, see things about Ebola. And the instinct that the world would have us fear, the world would have us uh, jump into a place in our minds where we say, this is a hopeless situation. We don't know the way out of it. And Isaiah, by reading Isaiah and by seeing the way that Isaiah reshaped the imagination of the people of Judah, uh, from that we can then start to develop a way of reimagining our world around us. So when the world would have us fear about the things that are happening around us, we, we can say, you know, we have a different way of doing things because of who God is and who Christ is for us. So Isaiah is this reimagining training ground. It's a way that we can kind of exercise these muscles. So 
as we wrap up the book of Isaiah, uh, the two months that Joe and, and I and others have spent on looking at the book of Isaiah could never really do justice. It could never really teach you all the things that you need to, to learn. So continue to read the book. Continue to, to wrestle with the passages, to wrestle with the things that you don't understand. Continue to grow in the depth of understanding of the historical context and the historical understanding that the authors of Isaiah worked out of. Um, but remember that, that this historical understanding, um, it's, sorry, th- this book of Isaiah and the way that we can read it, the way that we can, can grow from it, outside of just hearing the story of Isaiah and hearing the story of Judah as a histor- kind of a historical narrative, we, we do have that value and benefit from reading the book of Isaiah. We see the story of the people of God. We see, this, we see the cycles. We can feel like we're not alone in, in the broken covenant and the covenant made new and the repentance that happens throughout this book. Um, that's still our story. That's still what we do. Um, I mean, if we're honest, we break the covenant daily. You know, we, we're, we're in this consistent... Uh, we know what it is that God's called us to do. And because of our humanness, we fall short and we repent and we reestablish that, re- that covenant. Um, and God's, he's done that. He's done that through Jesus. Um, so we do see this historical narrative. We do see the people of God. But we also, like I said, are, are retrained in imagining the, the world around us. We're retrained in imagining uh, the hope that we have. We're retrained in imagining our situation. And this reimagination is, is what Isaiah I think is pointing the people of Judah to. He's pointing the, the original hearers of this book towards, uh, it, it's what he is wanting them to, to, to gain, is a way of looking at the world, the way of looking at their exile, a way of looking at their uh, f- failure to keep covenant, the way of looking at the, the loneliness that they might feel, the way of looking at the, the economic problems that they might have by being foreigners in a strange land, uh, and he's telling them to reimagine. He's telling them to not forget that God is a savior, that he's an emancipator, and that he remembers. Uh, it, it's one of the things that Brueggemann said um, is that Isaiah is a group of strange voices, uh, strange not in, in, in a way that we should discard them, but a group of strange voices that insist that Sinai is still definitive, that when God looks back to the Mount Sinai experience, that still means something. It still holds weight in our faith, and it still holds weight in our, in our worldview, and it still holds weight in our relationship toward God, that he, um, when, when there was a hopeless situation, he came and rescued us out of it. And when we, shouldn't, when we didn't deserve a covenant to be made, he still made a covenant with us. When, uh, when the covenant was made and we realized what it was called to do, we could never uh, live up to it. And he went into it knowing all of that and still, um, still made covenant with us. So Isaiah is a way of reshaping the way that our minds work. And, and uh, with, an, with an understanding of Isaiah's historical understanding, um, we recognize that there is an attentiveness throughout all of Isaiah. What makes it different than just a, a, a history book about the people of Judah is that there's this constant and thorough attentiveness to, to Yahweh's faithfulness throughout the book. It saturates it, and, and it lets us imagine ways of living that go against the way the world would have us live. And so as we close this, this study of Isaiah, as we close the, the two months and we move on to something different next week, um, let's believe differently about ourselves because of Isaiah, because of the way that he taught us to imagine 
And let's live differently because of the way that he taught us to reimagine our world and reimagine what our lives mean in the midst of the ideology of our day. So let's close in prayer as we close the study of the book of Isaiah. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. We thank you that the promises that you make for us are not, uh, they don't exist in a vacuum, that there's history rooted uh, in every promise and every um, assuredness that you give us. Lord, when you call us out of slavery to whatever it is that we are slaves to in, in our time, uh, whether that's lust or greed or um, materialism or fear, when you call us out of that, it's not because we just need to think better about ourselves, but it's because you actually are the Savior. You actually are the one who rescues us. And I, and I thank you that we have this book, the book of Isaiah, that points back towards that history and that works with that history and, and causes us to look at the way that we think, the way that we believe, the way that we pray, uh, the way that we come to you, the way that we relate to you, and it causes those things to be renewed and refreshed and reshaped. And so we thank you that we aren't left uh, to, to be slaves to society. We aren't left to be slaves to the way that the world runs, that we have a different way of living, we have a different way of thinking, we have a different way of imagining who you are in our lives. And so we're so grateful for that, Lord. I pray that for all the people in this room that Isaiah would be this book that is rich. Isaiah would be a book that, uh, that we can continually look to as, as a way of seeing what it is that you have for us, as a way of reminding us what it is that you've done for us, and a way of reminding us what it is that you'll always do for us, and that's that you'll save us, you'll rescue us. And so, Lord, we thank you for, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for this place. We thank you for the opportunity to come and study your word with people who, uh, who are like-minded in the way that they approach the scriptures, who are like-minded in the way that they want to, to get everything they can out of it, Lord. So we're so grateful for all that. We pray that you'd be with us today as we, um, as we go our separate ways and that you, that you would uh, just, just bless us as we go, that you would cause us to, um, to look at the situations in our lives differently than, than we did, than we do uh, on a normal basis, look at them differently than we did as we walked in the doors today, Lord, that this would be a new way of of living, a new way of thinking and believing. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We hope you've been spiritually encouraged by listening to this podcast. More podcasts and information about the College and 20-somethings ministry at New Life Church in Colorado Springs can be found at newlifechurch.org forward slash Sunday School.